0: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour episode number 15, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me Dan Wood
1: and Ravi Abbott.
0: Now every week on the show Ravi and I run through the big tech and retro stories of the week and then for the second half of the show we have a very noteworthy guest and this week anyone that used to love point-and-click adventure games. Cannot miss what we've got this week.
1: Yeah, we've got the world's oldest game designer, Al Lowe, from <laughs> Leisure Suit Larry
0: series. Now, a little disclaimer here. He describes himself as the world's oldest <laughs> yeah, game designer. We're not being rude.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Leisure Suit Larry, what a game. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. I used to spend a lot of time in a darkened room playing that when I was a teenager. <laughs> now, we'll all say underage we all were
0: when we played that game. Oh, that was
1: the appeal. It was, you know, a naughty kind of... Uh, text adventure game and you could
0: do stuff that you couldn't do as a kid you know trawling bars for women
1: yeah and and not being successful (laughs) a lot of the time (laughs) pretty much the same as adulthood yeah it doesn't change um but i
0: I always remember that game as well the the copy protection at the beginning or like no it was an age verification wasn't it
1: yeah yeah but the age verification was asking odd questions like you know kind of historical stuff that you know Not even adults would know at the time. (laughs) I'd
0: go downstairs to my dad and he'd be there like watching TV and i Dad, uh, who was the Prime Minister in 1842? And he'd be like, I don't know why, but just for school. (laughs) (laughs) So it's going to be great getting some of his stories because, I mean, that was really, it was probably one of the first like kind of point and click adventure games I ever played, actually.
1: Yeah, because there was a whole series that started with Sierra, King's Quest and uh, Police Quest and stuff. And Al has worked on a lot of, these games as well mm-hmm. so you know he's kind of one of the pioneers of this point and click genre Absolutely. which doesn't happen these days point and click there's not that many games around
0: yeah i think everything went 3d kind of rendering and like quick time events and all that yeah, didn't it it's so, kind of a lost genre yeah so yeah i'm sure he'll have some very interesting uh, stories to tell when he's on the show in around 35 minutes from now uh, before that though i thought we'd run through uh, a few stories that we spotted on the web this week um starting with acorn Acorn Computers, my
1: God, how long's it been since you've heard that name? School yeah. day memory, that, isn't it? Well, I don't know if you remember, quite a few years ago, in 2008, they had a company that was rebranding laptops with the Acorn logo.
0: I remember reading, did they ever come out? I remember reading that was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, a few did, but <laughs> okay. then
1: they said that the company didn't actually have any official accounts. Oh <laughs> Yeah. So it was like I think they just literally shoved it on. They'd had no trademark, right? But um, what happened today on Twitter and mm-hmm. it's been going around for a while? There's a scaffolding company called Acorn Scaffolding net, right? And they're using the Acorn logo.
0: Oh, is in? Yeah, I'm looking here. It's actually the yeah the old green acorn that's split in the middle. Yeah, of the, yeah. yeah okay. So
1: so a lot of Acorn fans have been going. Wait, isn't this trademark infringement? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And. They've contacted a company that's supposedly owning the Acorn Trademark. (laughs) Whose name on Twitter is Acorn Trademark. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) at Acorn underscore computers. And they give out the most confusing answer you've ever read. Read this, Dan. (laughs)
0: Okay, so it says, um, So yes, this has been our trademark for the last hashtag Beeb30 years. So they're obviously trying to trade on the BBC Micro's 30th birthday, I imagine. Um, please find another logo for your business to avoid confusion. So, yeah, but but the initial question is... So, is this now the legit use for the Acorn Computers brand? I'm confused. So, this is obviously someone just asking if that Acorn scaffolding are allowed to use it, and then... Uh,
1: yeah, but they're saying, yes, it's
0: the legitimate <laughs> right, <okay>. one.
1: <laughs> but
0: <laughs> I, I think someone's got a bit confused on Twitter here. Please find <laughs> another logo for your business to avoid confusion. Yeah. Yeah, so But even, you know, th- there are a lot of companies that own these old trademarks. I think there's one, there's like Commodore Holdings... Is another company owning own the Commodore trademark. And-
1: yeah, because the Commodore one's been passed around quite a lot. Acorn, yeah. you kind of see surfacing occasionally, you know. For,
0: for a company like Acorn that, you know, obviously left that legacy of the ARM CPU that's now the biggest CPU in the world, it's quite sad to see it getting <laughs> slapped on a scaffolding company, though, yeah, let's totally. be honest. Yeah,
1: Like, you know, every Raspberry Pi's out there. Everyone's got ARM on their iPhones, yeah, yeah. and you've got the original legacy guys, you know, being used by scaffolders.
0: Have you ever seen the, the la- I think it was Akon's last ever machine, it was called the Phoebe? Have you ever
1: seen that? Yeah, yeah, I've actually seen one in IRL, in real life. There's uh, only
0: one in the world, it must have been, was it a retro computer Yeah, console, yeah, it was, yeah, and it,
1: it looked beautiful, it was the r- RISC PC, wasn't mm-hmm. it, really fast. It was like a bright yellow case. Yeah, 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 and it's about, I think, 200 megahertz or
2: something.
0: Yeah, sounds yeah. about right. Well, it was, um, that was an ARM... Um, Machine as well. I think it was about 2002. They never released it there when it was kind of finished. But I remember they made a load of the cases, you know, thinking it was going to come off the production line. And I remember them selling like the cases on like eBay and stuff around the time. So there are collectors who've got those like bright yellow. Um, Phoebe cases now, but yeah, you're right. There is only one, but I remember reading on um, that computer museum's Facebook that it's broken now, apparently, and we can't oh, get no. go it going again.
1: So well, I think I saw it when it was running because I remember that this was when the Raspberry Pi was first coming out, and they had yep. this Beagle Board as well, which was an early one, mm-hmm. and uh, it was running, but they had. An OS. It was really old, so it is like the mis- the hardware was fast, but the OS hadn't actually been updated.
0: Okay, was it RISC OS or was it like Linux or something? Yeah, I like think or? it was
1: an older version of RISC OS. So yeah, say, yeah,
0: yeah. That was kind of a sad end to uh, you know such a. Such a big company, you know. Everyone that went to school in the 80s and 90s used Acorn computers. Yeah, it was a very British thing as well, yeah. wasn't it, Acorn? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, oh, now it's comedies. used on a, on a yeah. scaffolding company, so there you go. <laughs> Stop using it, please, scaffolding companies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, speaking of things from the past, that, um, well, this one is no longer going anymore. Can you believe that the last PlayStation 2 online servers have just closed down in the last couple of weeks?
1: Oh, wow. I, did, I, I didn't know they were still going. That's...
0: <laughs> I think that's actually probably the biggest story, isn't it, that they were still online. Well, um, the last game that you could officially play uh, on the actual servers that it started on was a Final Fantasy XI. Bizarrely, though, the servers down for the PS2 version and the Xbox 360 at the same time, even though they're kind of two separate generations.
1: You know, I must admit that I'd never played online on a PS2. Or knew that there was an online service for it. I
0: have got one of the... Because what you need is a hard disk adapter. It can only be the... the oh, at,
1: at the back, they've got that big fat section, haven't yeah. they? Yeah,
0: yeah, so you put a hard disk in there. You need the hard disk adapter, and it's got Ethernet on the back of it. Ah. So I've hooked mine up a couple of times, but every game I tried, I mean, it was probably about four years ago I tried it, but everything I tried was offline by then. Okay. It couldn't connect to anything. I didn't even know this game was still online, so I might have tried it just for, you know, just for giggles. But, you know, you think about this, a machine, when did the PS2 come out? Was that 2000, I think, it came out? Oh, God, I think it was. I think it was the now. original Japanese release was 2000. That's you think the year cool. 2000, dude, that was like, we're still using a lot of people like cassette tape Walkmans and VHS was a predominant format still. And
1: Well, I think it's slowing down as well now because console-wise, I know I haven't upgraded for years. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think the life that you have a console is a lot longer now than before when it was going 8-bit, 16-bit. We yeah. were just buying new ones every year.
0: Well, that kind of leads us quite nicely onto the next story, which is that Sony are apparently going to be bringing out a PS4K.
1: PS4K? What? So this is a, a PS, new one, PS4, but like with a 4K output? What's apparently, the
0: well, from it's only a rumor at the moment. Uh, but people have been saying that, you know, this is quite unprecedented, them coming out kind of mid-generation with a new iteration of the hardware. Because, obviously, the, the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One, I mean, they
1: can, you know, often barely support 1080p. I, I didn't know this, because um, you own one, yeah. right? So, can the PS4 do 4K? No, then? no, it
0: can, like, 1080p, like, you know, that's kind of a... if it, If a game can do... 60 frames a second in 1080p, that's considered really good.
1: Oh, wow. So. Okay, that's, that's really bad because <laughs> yeah. I'm a PC gamer and mm-hmm. a lot of my games at the moment are supporting 4K. Yeah. I just can't afford the monitor. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so.
0: that's the thing. I mean, you look at the, it hasn't even got the HDMI, I think it's 2.0 output, you know, for okay. 4K. Yeah. So what they're kind of saying is, I mean, you mentioned then that, you know, we used to kind of be—you'd have a console for a long time. You look at the last generation um, PS3 and Xbox 360; they ran like what, like ten years nearly, wasn't it? it was like nearly a decade. And still, games have been made for them now. Um, but yeah, the saying that really they couldn't afford to make a 4K capable console in 2012 when these machines came out. So now, what they could be doing is re-releasing the PS4, which really is going to be a new console, isn't it? Because it's going to yeah. need faster RAM, it's going to need a better GPU, probably faster CPU. Mm. So, what's going to happen to all those? Like, I think it's 30 or 40 million people that own a current PS4.
1: Well, also, you're gonna all the games are going to look a whole lot better. You know, mm-hmm. GTA five at the moment on the PC in 4K is astonishing. Yeah. So, hopefully, it will scale up. With the new well, that's the
0: thing. I'm wondering, will they... Have um,
1: re-releases. <laughs> well, know? yeah. Or are they
0: going to release games that kind of like, you can play on the old PS4 and the new one, but there'll be 4K on the new one and they'll kind of like
1: downgrade... It depends the if they've one. done it scalable mm-hmm. at the beginning. If, if, they, if they knew that this was a long-term plan, they might have had it in mind yeah. to make the game scalable. But if not, they might have to release <laughs> 4K editions of yeah. everything. Yeah,
0: and it's just, you're only going to be able to play it on the new PS4. That's going to create such a divide. And it kind of reminds me of when Sega brought out like the 32X. Yeah, That's the yeah, only thing yeah, I can these... kind of compare it to in my mind. And we all know what a success that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, because Sony, I, I think they have done this before, though. With the original PS1... You know the the kind of clunky grey one. Mm. I'm sure a bit later on, in before they brought out the smaller um, PS1 as it was called, when the technology got to the stage where the chips could run a bit cooler, I'm sure they give it a slightly higher clock speed.
1: Yeah, they had a better, nicer AV output on it as well. Yeah. But like, it, that was probably due to. But it actually, you know, yeah, yeah, it
0: actually ran quicker though. And I remember, like, you could compare them side by side, and some, like, you know, the intros of games would run a bit smoother, and the loading times would okay. be quicker, and all that. So, I think they, they kind of snuck that under the radar, though. It wasn't an advertised feature. Well, Sony
1: seem to know what they're doing. So.
0: <laughs> well, it's uh, you, you think they would. You know, they've been doing this for like what twenty one years now. Yeah. So you think, but. I've seen a lot of negative response to this online. People saying, well, you know, I only bought a PS4 two years ago. I expect it to last me at least five, six years. I don't want to get the crap versions of games. Maybe they're on.
1: going from the angle like, oh, this is like the slim, or this is, yeah. you know, you know, a kind of just different version of it. Only better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's the thing. I mean, I imagine, because I've owned a PS4 since launch, and I was thinking, would I actually go out and buy a new one for 4K? And I probably wouldn't. I mean, I haven't got a 4K TV at the moment. Yeah, my no. TV only does 1080p, but... I think if it gets to the stage where maybe they're down to like you know they're thinking maybe they get down to like two hundred quid for the new version, they're like, "Oh, it's only two hundred. Just buy a new one and forget the first
1: one you had." And well, well, this week I've just been hooking up my PC to my TV and using mm-hmm. Xbox game pads. And- yeah, yeah. I've got better than PS4 graphics, so it's just amazing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's well, probably the future. You know? <laughs> well, they've been saying, you know, with the Xbox and that, that's, that's probably the, you know, the, maybe they won't make another Xbox, it's just going to be a PC, and like, which technically are just PCs. And yeah, like, yeah, know, it's going that way so. with uh, Steam controllers and sitting at home on your sofa playing.
0: Yeah, we can stream Steam games and all that, can't we? Yeah. You now, so it's, uh, yeah, interesting. I mean, it's not necessarily a retro story, but I just thought, you know, from the angle of is this kind of unprecedented or has it been done before with any success? And, I think you're going to pee a lot of people off doing it, though. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. Time will tell. (laughs) Will it be
1: worth it? 4K YouTube?
0: Mm. Yeah. Or or then, I mean, some people have been saying maybe it'll just be like 4K Netflix and stuff and the games won't be affected or something. but. But,
1: But you've always got to remember with stuff like 4K Netflix that it still comes down the line. Yeah, you're still getting it streamed to you. So even if it is that high quality, you've mm-hmm. got to be receiving it at a good rate. Yeah, yeah, And there's going to be some kind of compression in there. So it's not true 4K. You know. It's yeah, then you've got your
0: ISP going, Oi, all I don't you've used this, yeah. man. Got over your <laughs> limit now. We're going to slow you down to like one megabyte a second. That's it. <laughs> now, this headline here when I read it, I'll admit I thought, is this about my dad? <laughs> man has the same phone for 10 years.
1: Yeah, so I thought, you know, that doesn't sound kind of that unusual Mm -hmm. but if you think what's happened in the decade of kind of having the phones and i think it was an old nokia yeah this is like a 3310 or something Mm -hmm. and um at&t have just contacted him so he's been keeping this phone on and it's been going for this long and they finally said we'll no longer be able to provide a service for you yeah unless you get a new handset
0: unless you go for a
1: 3g or a (laughs) 4 lte one like an upgraded one
0: you know but well, I mean, first of all, you've got to say, you know, I know it's kind of a meme online these days, but Nokia's. Is, this is things have been running for ten years and it's still working fine to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: they were solid. Yeah, as a absolutely.
0: Rock, like. I, I love on this. Um, it's nice to go on the mirror as well. I love the description they got here. He bought the device back in two thousand five, before Obama moved into the White House and before anyone had ever heard of the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> so, looking at this, sir, they're saying to him, they're basically going to drop anything that's kind of sub three G.
1: By the sounds of it. That's why you can't use it anymore. Which is a bit odd because, you know, all these, why drop it? You know, the service is probably, they've still probably got customers for it.
0: But, this phone here, I mean, they said he bought this in 2005. The original iPhone didn't have 3G either, and that was, what, 2007? And remember, AT&T were the original launch network for the, the
1: iPhone. Maybe you can just change network, provided there still might be some people out there doing, uh, you know, GSM.
0: Oh, dude, I mean, you, you can get you can get a Nokia unlocked on any, like, market stall, can't you, whatever any yeah, town, yeah. you know
1: what I mean? So uh, I'm sure if he desperately wants to click onto his old handset, there will be a way, but... Well, talking of old handsets, I've seen some of the prices here, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the... Old Nokia's like the first ever phone that was released, which is the Mobira Centaur. Is that a massive thing? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh it's nine hundred pounds.
0: Really? <laughs> yeah. See, I've still got a Nokia 3310 kicking around, and it still charges, it still works just fine, but they were probably a bit more common than the, uh, the well, early Nokia Eighty one tens 8110s hit, can sell
1: for up to £60. Are
0: they the small ones? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think my dad had one of them yeah. for a while, yeah. He might still have one at home somewhere. But I think, you know, it's like anything, when they're a commodity hardware that everyone's got, You know, they're going to sell for nothing on eBay. But then I've even noticed now original iPhones are in good condition. They're selling for like, you know, hundreds of pounds again now. Yeah, yeah, your old iPod. (laughs) Yeah, I've got the original iPod, yeah. But my first ever iPhone, I remember I got my iPhone. It was about six months before it came out here. And I bought it on uh, on eBay from America. Got it imported. It was unlocked and everything. I remember there was a guy who I worked with at the time and he was like a massive Apple fan. And he didn't have one. He'd never seen one in person. And I had it in my hand. He goes, oh, his jaw dropped. Is that an iPhone? Is that an iPhone? <laughs> Ran around the table. I'm like, yeah, well, calm down, calm down. But you go into bars and that. And I'd just be
1: like, you know, texting on it and stuff. And people are like, oh my God,
0: is that an iPhone? You know what I mean? It was. I like- must
1: admit, I've I've had cheap phones for a long time mm. and kind of, Always wanted to have an iPhone, but never, never tried it. And yeah. it, I was always kind of a bit jealous and a bit uh, Apple fanboys. <laughs> but I've just got an iPhone 4S, mm-hmm. and uh, battery power is a bit crap, but it's stable. Yeah, yeah, that's the key to it. It doesn't crash, and all these other phones crash.
0: And well, I've got Android devices, and you know, I do find. You know, I think these days there's not as much between Android and iOS. You basically get the same apps on most of them, don't yeah. you? But I, I've always preferred the iOS
1: experience and the fact that, you know, I've had iPhones for nearly... It well, just seems solid to me. And yeah. If I'm getting calls for work and texts and stuff, mm-hmm. I need a solid phone that yeah, yeah. works as a phone, you know, and that's but, the main thing.
0: Well, this first iPhone though that I paid like five, six hundred quid for on eBay, <laughs> I gave it to my little brother and yeah. he had it, you know... When I got like the 3G one, I think he had it about two weeks and he dropped it and the screen all smashed and circuit board was hanging out the front of it and all that. <laughs> so I threw it in the bin and now I'm looking online they're selling for like 700 quid again. I'm like, oh, oh geez, even oh, the particular. spare parts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, but keep hold of your old Nokias and stuff. You know, it's, uh, it's like anything, the price will go up eventually. Definitely. Yeah, so um, props to this guy. Keep hold of it another 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, uh, now, this is probably something that works better visually, but we will link to a picture. This is a guy wearing what can only be
1: described as the nerdiest suit ever. It's the nerdiest suit, but it's quite stylish. Yeah. uh, Well, (laughs) would you wear it, Dan? I probably would, to be fair. This is a
0: Pac-Man suit.
1: That's it. And it's an official Pac-Man suit. Yeah, this is licensed.
0: It's it's trademark,
1: yeah. (laughs) How do you even go about applying for a trademark for that? God knows. (laughs) Go to Namco.
0: By the way, can we make a suit, please? (laughs) So what it is, it's kind of a it's a it's a black suit pretty much, and it's got the Pac-Man map on, and all the ghosts are there: Blinky, Pinky, Inky, Clyde, and uh, Pac-Man himself, which actually appears a few times around it. Look at it; it's on the sleeve. Uh, it's, there's even the matching tie
1: as well. Which I yeah, think is very and cool. it's quite nice because I like how the pills look like pinstripe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it kind of <laughs> works nice on the lapels and stuff. But, but from a distance, this could
0: just be like a kind of funky-looking suit, couldn't it? But yeah, then.
1: exactly. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, kind of this geek culture started to go into mainstream fashion yeah. and stuff. And, you know, people are...
0: Well, this is actually a proper suit company. They're called uh, Oppo Suits.
1: Yeah, it seems they do totally crazy suits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's one with cannabis leaves all over it. Yeah. Or you can get just <laughs> some mad designs.
0: But actually, it's £77 it sells for. So That's, that's not bad, you know, even for yeah. a, for a suit, that's pretty good. I am getting married next year. I need a suit for that.
1: <laughs> that'll be, Reckon that'll, that'll fly with the missus. Yeah, or your groomsmen. Right? <laughs> Do, you, I mean, uh, Do you think you'd get a job at a tech company if you turned up in a Pac-Man suit?
0: That's not a bad shout, is it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're either going to get hired or kicked out, one of the two, aren't you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll uh,
0: we'll pop a link if you want to uh, be a little bit eccentric and stand out. The only time I ever wear suits is to, like, you know, award shows and that, really. But I think it's a conversation starter, isn't oh, it? Oh, definitely, yeah. So uh, we mentioned before that we live in the, uh, the, the fair city of Nottingham and uh, there is something a bit unique here. We've got a board game cafe.
1: Yeah, called the Dice Cup. And I actually went there, like, this weekend. It was really good. I went okay. with my girlfriend and a mate and they've got a comic book store in there, so we bought some comic books. But they've just got all these tables set out and you pay £5 each... You can go and sit there in there for hours right? <laughs> and just play board games. So we decided, because my girlfriend's foreign Brazilian, mm. she doesn't know Scrabble. Right. So we just went old school and went for Scrabble. But okay. It was really good fun. Everyone was playing games everywhere. Did they have a load
0: of different selection of games you can just play then? Yeah, yeah, okay. like
1: a massive selection. But I can't believe how many people were in there. Mm-hmm. There was about 40, 50 people on a Saturday. Really? All sat down playing games. It was completely rammed. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the busiest <laughs> That's places It's busy at the most town. bars these days, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
0: yeah. But we were actually playing um, an old board game that I love called Key to the Kingdom.
1: We've been playing that recently, but I've been getting back into board games again recently. Well, th- so. this is cool because it's not like they're board game snobs. It's mm. not like you have fantasy games or. Warhammer. Can you play
0: Ludo? Can you? You could play Ludo. Yeah, you could play. You
1: know. Uh... Oh, Jenga or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's great. They <laughs> should come along doing uh, yeah, a good Saturday night, that would be, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, I said I'd give them a mention on the podcast, and they uh, really appreciate it. They've got their own little board game podcast as well. Have uh, we they? in the links. Yeah. Okay,
0: very nice, very nice. Now, I've got a couple of Chromecasts at home, and uh, apparently this has been tried out on a CRT TV you've seen. here. Yeah,
1: this is absolutely insane. Some guy, he, he said he's not a hipster. <laughs> he quoted right. that. No, he said he had an old CRT, but... What he's done is he's managed to connect the HDMI output to the VHF antenna port. Right. And it makes it turn the TV on when you want to stream. So he's managed to connect a Chromecast to it straight away, cast straight to the TV. (laughs) Bing! Turns now, on. We're not
0: talking like uh, you know a CRT widescreen from 2005 here. We're talking a proper 1978 one with a tuning dial and everything. Oh yeah, totally. And
1: <laughs> this has to warm up as well. So as soon as oh, you start the video, <laughs> it's got to warm up. The color comes as a buzz. You yeah, know. the black and then this fade in takes about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, but the- it's it's amazing this little hack.
0: You know. and I love the fact he's watching lazy game reviews on there as well. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so I've got a couple of Chromecasts, and they are great little devices. But um, I've never thought of trying it on a on a TV from the 1970s. I must
1: admit. Yeah, it, it kind of gives it a nice little vibe watching does, uh, YouTube on an old CIT. But you
0: could stream like old TV shows, and it feel like you've gone back in time. Totally. <laughs> Now, last week we had a very interesting guest for uh, fans of the Sinclair and uh, Sega machines. We had Jim Bagley on last week, and we actually had quite a lot of listeners in Singapore quite randomly yeah, last week. Yeah, a group.
1: Yeah,
0: of hardcore uh, Sinclair fans. But also, one of the interesting stories that you talked about in last week's podcast, and if you didn't hear it, definitely worth a listen, he did the port of um, Doom to the Sega Saturn. And he told a story about how he had it running really nicely in hardware rendering, but ID Software crippled it and basically said, no, it's got to be done in software. So the game ran a lot slower than it originally did. And he was a bit upset about it, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, and he was saying, you know, this was John Carmack's decision yeah. and Romero said he would have done it differently. He was on holiday, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. At the time, yeah. Well, what's, what's the update you've got to this story then? Well, one of our listeners, Diego Barros, decided just to tweet Carmack, <laughs> which is what we should have done anyway. Why do we uh, think of that? Yeah, maybe get him on the show. But, um... He said, what was the reason why you disapproved of Doom on the Sega Saturn using hardware rendering and only allowed software rendering? And he says a quite complex answer. Right. Which is, quad distortions with perspective correction looks pretty bad. But in hindsight, I should have let it be tried. So, 20 years down the line, he's put his
0: hands up and said, all right, I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's
1: quite nice that, you know, we, we can get a story told on a podcast mm-hmm. and then people will pursue it yeah so, thanks for uh, doing that diego that's yeah, great thank you very
0: much but uh, we'll pass it on jim bagley it might be quite nice for him to uh to see after all this time yeah finally a uh, conclusion to the story <laughs> now speaking of a story that's uh got a bit of a conclusion finally and i will be honest i'm kind of getting fed up hearing about this story but this will be the last time that we mention
1: it yeah i'm sick of watching pat's <laughs> videos on it he's seen so many you can even tell in the videos he's getting annoyed oh. about it well you know what it is guys
0: the calico chameleon um in the final end to this story, uh, the guy behind it, Mike, has finally spoken out on the Atari Age forum. Now, obviously, anyone that's been following this story um, over the last, what, it feels like about six months
1: it's been going on now. Yeah. I'm sure it's this only is, been about this two This is or three. Mike Kennedy.
0: Yeah, Mike Kennedy, who was uh, the, the, really the guy behind it. And um, you could kind of say he went into hiding a little bit after all of the, the fake prototypes and that came around. He, didn't, he, used to, he used to be quite regular on the Atari Age forums and he hadn't posted there for about a month. It was after that last one, wasn't it, when it was a, a video capture card got discovered in the shell? Yeah. So he's actually come along now a month down the line and said, right, you know, his reputation means more to him than this project. So he's tried to clear it up a little bit. What he's basically saying is he hired a guy to do the hardware and he got duped, you know. He um, he didn't inspect what this guy was doing with the hardware. And he also got scammed along with everybody oh, so, else. so
1: he's as yeah, as much as a fool of all, as all of us. Yeah, well, he's basically, <laughs> yeah. you know.
0: It kind of feels a bit like damage limitation.
1: Because I think he runs
0: like a magazine and stuff as well. Okay. But honestly, uh, have you read the, the thread on the Atari Age forum?
1: I, I've tried to stay away because now I feel that the story's kind of dead. And now you can't stay in a neutral stance with it. Mm-hmm. It's just like a kind of flame fest at the moment, I mean. Well, for anyone that didn't, you know,
0: we, we mentioned it probably about a month ago the last time. We didn't really conclude the story because we were covering it every week. We've had people tweeting us going, why are you not doing updates on it? But we're spending 10 minutes an episode talking about it and we yeah. thought, yeah, we've had uh, enough
1: And there. because it's becoming more of a drama yeah. than an actual thing about hardware and about gaming.
0: Well, the end result was that the, the Kickstarter was cancelled. Um, Coleco pulled their name, naming rights from it. So the entire thing has been scrapped now and it's not going to go ahead. But, um... Literally, Mike has been ripped a new one. On the Atari Age forums, he's getting... I've never seen anything quite so brutal as his thread. Wow. Um, I think, you know, he's he's basically... Whether there's any coming back from this. People seem genuinely annoyed about it, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think everybody... It it got into national press that, Mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of a a prototype held together by cardboard and sticky tape. And (laughs) it was a... It's a very bad thing for the whole Kickstarter scene. But Mm -hmm. I guess it's it's got to try and... Get his reputation.
0: Well he said he he paid seven grand to this kind of hardware designer who apparently was just putting these fake prototypes in. And he printed loads of conditions, like when they were at the trade show, you know, when they had the um the original Mini Super Nintendo in there. Mm. Apparently, you wouldn't let him take pictures of the back of it and all that, he's saying this guy. But if you're the one that's funded it, you'd just be like... Yeah, and if you're that
1: passionate about the console, you're going to want to look at the prototype and you're going to be excited to see it, you know, (laughs) know look inside at everything. Yeah, yeah. so... um, Not just stick it in a box and then shove it on the show floor. Well, (laughs) you know, he's (laughs) saying
0: at the moment he's losing sleep over it and, you know, if his reputation's in shatters and he wants to get back in the community and all that, but... Um. Yeah, from
1: what I've heard, he's he's quite a nice guy, so... He's got I, a long history, I, hasn't he? Yeah, it, you know? but with something like this, you know, you've totally laid yourself open to mm-hmm. criticism and abuse from a lot of people, I think. You
0: know? Well, he's got all those Atari Jaguar shells, you know, selling a few of them for modders. So maybe oh, yeah, way God, back I, I a forgot about that.
1: that, that that's <laughs> the next project, isn't it?
0: That's what yeah. I thought, you know. I, this is a video he did on Vimeo before this whole thing kicked off, where he actually shows you go into the the like workshop of this guy that bought yeah. the Atari Jaguar models and the show, like, you know, how they're all pressed and everything like that. And I, so I've got a Jag. I, I've actually got two Jags, randomly. Um, and I remember thinking, it would be cool to have, like, you know, you know what they do with the Amiga shells where they're all different colours and have different LED lights and all that in there. That so. project
1: would probably make a lot more sense. You yeah, know? probably <laughs> more prob- than the Coleco Chameleon. Yeah, it probably yeah. make some
0: money. as <laughs> <laughs> But you just know someone's then going to release, like, you know, a Super Nintendo Jr. and put Cole- Coleco Chameleon on the case yeah. and put it on <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been, you know, a drama from start to finish and I can't say I'm sad to see the end of the story. And hopefully that's it now it's done and dusted yeah we hope so but um, we have had people asking if we'll uh, conclude the story so there you go Coleco Chameleon is done and dusted over that's it over (laughs) (laughs) right well listen thank you so much guys for checking out episode 15 of the Retro Hour available every week from our website theretrohour.com Soundcloud iTunes Mixcloud YouTube oh god we can't name any more yeah your (laughs) favourite podcast client and uh, the second half of the show then we dedicate to a
1: notable guest we've definitely got one this week oh god he's a complete legend Aulo God, got, it, please Quest, you know, King's Quest. He Leisure was, Suit Larry, come yeah, on. <laughs> all these Sierra games. He was a great point and click master. And he's a very funny guy as well. Yeah, so for the next half an hour,
0: Al Lowe on the Retro Hour. And we will catch you next Friday. Catch you next Friday. I thought it might be quite nice to start right at the beginning, though, Al. What was your first computer experience?
2: My first computer experience was with a DEC PDP 1170 mini computer that our school district owned it seemed like the perfect device to help me in my job as a marching band director moving people around on a football field designing shapes and geometrics uh, formations and things so I went to the uh, computer department and I said I have this great idea for a program. And when they stopped laughing, they said, yeah, sure. <laughs> That'll never happen. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, actually within about five years or six years, uh, someone wrote that program. Of course, by then I was off doing games. And, and, and really, I, because I, I taught high school marching band, uh, I was used to moving individual pixels around on a grid. You know, so actually putting things on a screen kind of came naturally to me
0: how do you make the journey from that into
2: uh, games then well it seems obvious if you uh, trained as a as a musician and a jazz saxophonist and you teach high school kids how to march and how to play uh in orchestra and so forth What else are you qualified to do but write games? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think it's one of um, I was in the right place at the right time and I'd had the right experiences. I was always a I was a proto geek back in grade school. I was the kid who fixed the projector. When the you know when the sixteen millimeter film projector didn't work, I was the kid who could figure out how to fix it. And and when I got into high school, I was the kid that built the speaker systems and wired the you know ran the board and uh, you know all those kinds of things. I built kit electronic kits, so I was always kind of geeky. And when I heard about computers uh, in the mid seventies, I just thought, yeah, I, this is this is like the ultimate toy. I've got to get one of those somehow. And, um, of course, I had no real reason for having one, so I had to convince my wife that somehow I would make it pay for itself, and we dropped a bundle of money. I mean, we spent more than our combined incomes for the month uh, buying an Apple II with two floppy drives and a green screen monitor about 11 inches, I think, maybe, and, and uh, eventually I did make it pay for itself, I guess, <laughs> now that I think about it. They weren't
0: really but, designed for home but, users,
2: though, really, were they computers back then? I actually, uh, my first program was uh, because my son started nursery school and caught the chicken pox He came home and gave them to me, and about three weeks later, I was just covered in pox uh, everywhere. I was so sick. Um, And these are the days before you had cable TV or Internet, of course, or anything. Uh, uh, We had three channels of television during the day, and all of them were horrible. So um, I ended up uh, having this uh, deck uh, basic manual uh, that I got from the school district because they said no real programmer would ever write in basic. And so they said just take this book home because we're not going to use it. You can you can borrow it if you want to try. And so I started um, uh, writing a program uh, because I ran music festivals, uh, competitive uh, music contests where I would hire a dozen judges and give them forms that I designed, and they would hear the groups uh, perform or watch them march by um, and then assign scores in various subcategories and so forth. All these scores had to be added up properly and and divided and averaged and blah, 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 lots of, it was, a, it was just a big complicated algorithm, uh, which I didn't know that word at the time. I thought it would be really cool to use this computer to keep the scores for, this, for my music festival. So I, I was home with two weeks with nothing to do. The school district loaned me a uh, dumb terminal and an acoustic coupler modem wow. that I think was <laughs> 110 baud. I believe. That's quite fast yeah. for the day. Not, a, not <laughs> 110 megabit, <Yeah. laughs> which is what I have now, but 110, period. You could watch the characters type across the screen. In fact, I could almost type as fast as, uh, as the uh, things put characters on the screen. But what it did was enable me to sit at home. The, the whole second week that I had chickenpox, I was contagious and thus, thus quarantined to the house. <laughs> uh, but I wasn't sick. I, I I felt fine. So I sat and hacked for a, like, I don't know, probably, I probably put in an 80-hour 80, 80 week that week. just, And what by the time I was done, I had entered in all the formulas that uh, were required for this music festival. Eventually, I polished it up a little bit, and we became the first... Uh, music festival, it, as far as I know in the world, I've been saying this for 30 years and nobody's ever contradicted <laughs> me. This was before the Apple II. Well, actually, it was about when the Apple II came out. Yeah. Uh, it was 1977. So um, after a couple of years of doing this with this uh, big mainframe, then I um, uh, thought, well, I could, if I had an Apple II, I could do the same thing and sell this program to music festivals all over the world and um, and so that's what I did I convinced my wife we bought an Apple II and I programmed the whole thing into it and I, I think we sold upwards of five copies well you know when we got done it was like oh yeah this this actually works you could actually use this and by that point my son and I had gotten interested in playing games on the Apple II and so uh, I thought geez uh, these games are not very complicated if I can write this integrated uh, Database, uh, relational database program that ha- had 20 different um, modules all uh, calling on the same data files and doing it all on the Apple two with two floppy drives. And so if I can do that, a heck, I can write a little game. And so uh, when graphics packages came out for the Apple II, <clears throat> the first one was uh, Mark Pilsarsky's, uh Penguin Software Graphics Magician, it was called. Um, and he, uh, Sierra advertised that they were going to have their graphics package out right away. Uh, but they didn't make it, and I couldn't wait. So I bought Mark Belzarski's package, and it actually worked. He ended—he was a math teacher, I think. He was a school teacher too, um, and uh, ended up making friends with him. And and uh, one of the guys that worked with him as uh, ended up going on to do great things with Sega and a lot of other companies. And so it was—it was the beginnings of the industry. I mean, we were—we were the one of the very first. In fact, I, as far as I know, the games that I wrote. In 1982, were the first educational computer games that were games first, mm-hmm. and also taught something, as opposed to all the other software that we saw was educational exercises. You know, we what we wrote actual games because that's what my son and I enjoyed playing. We we played uh, Sierra games mostly because th- they were heavily advertised and good, and and we enjoyed them. So uh, my games ended up looking like. Roberta's games. And so that was an advantage that I didn't really plan on. But uh, when we took our materials to the first Apple Fest mm-hmm. in San Francisco, all, all the publishers came around and, uh, and raved about the games because they, uh, they looked like regular commercial games, except they were educational. And so when Ken Williams saw them, he gave me what I felt at the time was the ultimate compliment. He, he yelled to, uh, over to Roberta, who was following him, and uh, said, "Hey, Berta, come here. You got to see this. this. This guy's stuff looks just like your games." <laughs> it was like, "Wow, that's a it's, that's the highest compliment." <laughs> yeah, that must have been quite a buzz. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was I was thrilled. And so we ended up talking with uh, dozens of publishers. Uh, only a few of which were big enough and serious enough that we you know, actually considered them. But uh, Sierra was close to me geographically. We were only 45 minutes away from my house, and um, they were the biggest at the time. They did the most advertising. They were serious about wanting to start an educational software component, and so they took my games, and that was the beginning of Sierra's uh, foray into educational software.
0: What attracted you to the genre of um, like adventure games and games
2: with good narratives and good stories? I don't have very good twitch reflexes. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's the biggest reason. I I wasn't very good at at arcade games back then. And of course, there there were very few um, RPGs or anything like that, and no first-person shooters. Um, eh, we played Castle Wolfenstein, but it was a horrible game back then. Um, anyway, the, there was uh, it was the genre that seemed the most interesting to me, and I always felt like adventure games were following the path of narrative that movies had followed. You know, um, uh, when movies first started they were very crude and primitive and over the years they made advances until they became a good medium for storytelling. And I thought the same thing would happen with games. I truly felt like uh, adventure games were going to continue to grow and then at some point, you know, we would surpass movies because... I mean, once you play an interactive game, you know, sitting back and watching some guy on a screen do everything and make all the choices isn't as exciting to me, at least. And so I thought adventure games were going to become the storytelling medium of the future and that movies were going to be soon relegated to how old, like, uh, like silent pictures are now, you know, the just kind of second-class citizens where, uh, sure, they have nice graphics and stuff and they have pretty actors, but but uh, games are going to have all that stuff. Plus, you get to make all the decisions. <laughs> hasn't, worked, hasn't worked out that way yet, has it? <laughs> <laughs> well, what amazed
1: me was the kind of immersion that you had in the game. So, Police Quest, you know, the uh, first one was really amazing, the kind of free-roaming that you could do in there. You could explore on your own. You weren't set on a kind of path, you know.
2: Part of that was because it was developed by a real cop. You know, Jim Walls was a a highway patrol officer who um, stopped a bad guy, and the guy jumped out of his car and came back at Jim's police car with his with a weapon with a pistol drawn and aimed it right at Jim's head through the windshield and fired. And Jim said, "All I could think of was I'm gonna die because I put on this goddamn seatbelt." <laughs> he couldn't <laughs> he couldn't get out of the seatbelt and couldn't get uh, away in time. And uh, the guy's gun misfired, but it uh, Jim just suffered uh, well, traumatic stress and, you know, injury and ended up quitting the police force and taking early retirement. So when he happened on to Ken Williams, uh, at, at I think at the gym, I think they met on the racquetball court, maybe anyway, uh, so they started talking and Jim had great stories. I mean, all cops have good stories, you know, but, but, uh, Jim was a great storyteller. And so, um, when Ken said, well, well, there's no police games out. Why don't you write a police game? Well, Jim didn't have a clue what to do, but he knew stories, and so he wrote some great stories. You know, He put this story together, and I think they worked on it for about a year, uh, and they just never could get it finished, couldn't figure out how to finish it. And so Ken said to me, when uh, after I shipped Leisure Suit Larry and the game bombed, uh, it had the worst sales of any program they'd ever sold, I think. Um, I thought, well, I've s- w- screwed up six months of my life. Uh, so again, said, well, you could really, could you save Police Quest? Could you go over and help them, uh, you know, finish this game? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do something. I need the money. So uh, I went over to the Police Quest guys, and in four months, I believe, we, we ended up... Um, making his stories into a uh, into a game uh, but but the whole flavor of the game and everything was is because of Jim I mean all I did was add clues and clean up code uh, because when he you got the game if you didn't know police procedures you would never be able to finish the game because it would yeah. tell you you did something wrong That's- but it wouldn't tell you what or how and uh, and so it was like the most frustrating game to play because uh, you, would do, you wouldn't you would do the right thing, but you had no idea what the right thing was that you were supposed to do nor how to find it. And so, uh, yeah, so the supplemental materials that we added and the uh, helpful hints and, and all that stuff made it into a game. Yeah, as you mentioned, there were lots of
1: elements in Police Quest, like, you know, you had to walk around the car to inspect the, there was no oh. damage on it. It was, it was very meticulous. And I was amazed well, at all the let different. Me, let
2: me give you an example. So uh, the way that was originally when I got to it, the way that worked was if you went to the car and got in, you died. And it said the error message was you're blowing it. <laughs> I didn't so, find out why. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, you know, so all those things that, that, you know, helped you figure out, oh, yeah, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this. Oh, OK. Yeah, that's the stuff that uh, that I got involved with. Yeah. You you forgot your radio and then you
1: die. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was like uh, you had to take it in stages to
2: yeah. complete. And the air message for that was. You're blowing it. He only had one error message. Whenever anything <laughs> went wrong, you're blowing it.
1: Yeah, I even remember crossing the, uh, the lights without sirens. <laughs> exactly that would happen. Yeah, oh,
2: shoot.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned a few minutes ago one of your games that's close to my heart, Leisure Suit Larry, which um, I played you know, many years underage. I was when I first got my hands on that game. But speaking of that, there was some quite unique protection at the beginning of, the, of that game where you get asked a question that only adults would know the answer to. Uh (laughs) who came up with
2: that idea Uh, actually that was ken williams idea because he was a big trivial pursuit fan and he he loved playing trivial pursuit and so we played it a lot uh my wife and roberta and he and i we when we were talking about uh how the game was progressing about you we said well geez it's uh maybe we should have some sort of protection for kids so kids don't play the game. Uh, And so Ken K said, well, what if we just ask some trivia questions? So uh, between me and him and a bunch of other people, we all wrote a few questions. Some of them turned out to be prescient. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen the one about O.J. Simpson. Yes. But uh, that was that was scary when when I realized that holy cow, we did that ten years before yeah. uh, it, it became reality. So. Well, uh,
0: Ravi and I were saying before we go and ask our parents, and you know, pretend we're doing school homework, and we needed the answers for the questions. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah who was mom? Who was Spiro Agnew? <laughs> Or, or I'd know the answer to three questions, and I'd
2: keep reloading the disk until I got yeah, the combination got the right one, with yeah. those three <laughs> questions. Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, I'd, I've talked to a lot of people who said they, when they got an answer right, they wrote it down. And, of course, you know, all you had to do was press Alt-X. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Because, you know, I wasn't about to waste my time answering all those questions. Once I got the code in and it worked, well, the next thing I did was put in a cheat. And we were so naive, we figured, oh, who the hell's going to press these alt keys, you know, and, and uh, so we left all the debugging code in, too. You could press alt D and bring up the debugger, and then you can change variables and and load, you know, other images. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do Uh uh, in those early versions of the games, just because we didn't think anybody'd ever try it. Um, so, yeah, it's a, As I said, it was a simpler time. <laughs> so you were saying that um,
1: Leisure Suit Larry initially didn't sell
2: very well. What happened there? I get. I think what happened was Ken th- thought it was going to be um, less. More clean and less dirty than it it turned out to be. Um, And so as we got closer to the time of shipping it, he got kind of wary of it and worried about maybe it would cause trouble for the company. Plus, the company was in pretty bad shape. Um, As I recall, he offered me a hell of a deal if I wouldn't take any advances against future royalties. Uh, and instead take a larger royalty rate. In other words, I would take more risk because the company was that short of money that he didn't want to spend it paying me. Um, And so I ended up taking huge royalty uh, in exchange for taking no advances and just living off my wife's income and Mm -hmm. so forth so that we could uh, afford to do it. And so when the game shipped, I was really disappointed because it was like, Man, this uh, this is terrible. But he did no advertising, did no marketing for the game. Um, at that time, Radio Shack was one-third of all of Sierra's retail business. Um, the, in other words, uh, one out of every three games they sold went through Radio Shack. And Radio Shack was uh, run by a CEO who was a born-again Christian. They did their own quality assurance testing of games and products before they sold them. And the poor guys who were doing the testing were scared to death uh, to even look at the game for fear they'd get caught by the bosses and uh, uh, Christian guys and uh, get thrown out for being nasty, dirty people. Uh, Radio Shack didn't take the game, so immediately a third of our audience was gone. But interestingly enough, that worked to my advantage. Because when the game did start to sell, people couldn't buy it at Radio Shack, they had to buy it somewhere else. And because Radio Shack was such a big customer, uh, Ken gave them a really great price, which was nice because they sold a lot of product, but it meant I got a smaller number of cents <laughs> out of each copy sold, and therefore if you bought the game at Software Etc. or at Babbage's or someplace, I made more money on a copy than if they, you bought it at Radio Shack. So uh, by, not, by having Radio Shack not sell it, um, uh, I ended up making more money uh, because of that. So at the time, it didn't seem like a good idea. But uh, when the game's word of mouth started spreading, it uh, sales continued to grow. And Each month for the first year, I think the sales doubled until after a year, um, Larry was uh, in the top 10 with a bullet as a rising new star. And and then you look closer and it says, uh, weeks on the chart, 54.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not quite so new.
2: <laughs> what? What? How can that be? <laughs> but uh, yeah, after 54 weeks, it was in, uh, I think it was number three or something uh, uh, nationally. Well, I guess today so. th-
0: th- they'd call that going viral, I guess, today, wouldn't they?
2: <laughs> well, you know, we actually, inv- because the copy protection was so weak and the game was loved by hackers – uh, Seem to be universally loved by hackers. Um, the game actually uh, was widely pirated. <laughs> it, it, it's always funny when I meet somebody and uh, uh, they say, Oh, I played that game. And so I, the, my next question is always, Well, did you pay for it? <laughs> and almost always they, the answer is, um, I think I paid for some of the later ones. <laughs>
0: I wasn't old enough. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Yeah, um, so i I like to say that we invented shareware. We just didn't know it. Yeah, well, they
1: say that more copies of the hint book were actually sold than the original game. Yeah,
2: uh, that is true. um, uh, And fortunately, I made good money on the hint books. Uh, Ken didn't want to put out hint books. He thought that, that the 900 phone number would make more money, which it probably did. But to me, I said, I think we you know, selling hint books, I think is going to be a big profit margin. And he originally said, well, why don't you just do it and I'll sell them and then you can make all the money. And I should have jumped on that. And I, but I was scared. And, and so I said, no, you publish it and I'll write them. And so I uh, wrote the hint books. I think I had a 50% royalty rate. And so I did all the hint books for King's quest and space quest. And, uh, well, it, one space quest that's got caught on and and said, Hey, this is good money. I'll make money here too. So, (laughs) So yeah, but I did a lot of the games. Um, Uh, just to get the hint book thing rolling.
0: I always remember one scene in Leisure Suit Larry when he went into the the disco and everyone was kind of dressed in those kind of disco jumpsuits that Larry was wearing. Was it kind of an intentional thing? Because obviously by this point in the late 80s, disco was not cool anymore. Was that intentional to make Larry
2: like that? The whole idea was that Larry was this fish out of water, Mm -hmm. that he was a guy trying desperately to be cool using the uh, the techniques that uh, he heard about when he was in his 20s and now he's like his late 30s and he's totally out of it. So sure, the whole idea was to mock that culture. Uh, when You know, the game is based on an old game called soft porn mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, a huge hit in the early days of Sierra. Let's see, how can I say, when Time Magazine ran its first column on home computers, the very first uh, issue was about soft porn. And it was, uh, the cover was featured in the magazine, and, and uh, uh, it was a big deal. You know, it was a really big deal. At a time when Apple had sold 100,000 Apple IIs, Ken had sold 25,000 copies of soft porn and everybody I knew had a pirated version, so it was pretty much a hundred percent market penetration. You know, at the time, uh, it was a huge game. But when Ken got the rights to the Disney characters uh, through a deal when Texas Instruments fell out of business, uh, went under and gave up on on uh, home computers. Um, they owned the rights to all the Walt Disney characters, to all the Mattel characters, to Barbie and uh, Sesame Street. I mean, just on and on. They Texas Instruments bought up all the licensable characters they could find. And so Ken got a chance to grab the uh, Disney characters uh, for a song. Um, so For a few years, well, for for a year, I was like Walt Disney Software. I put out uh, uh, two or three games from uh, the the Disney characters, Uh, and somehow Disney didn't appreciate being in the same catalog with a game called soft porn Adventure. <laughs> and by that time, the game had kind of run its course. And so Ken dropped soft porn in favor of the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all those games. That's quite change. Uh, but when we, uh, when we realized that the only person making money on these Disney games is Disney, <laughs> that their royalty rate is so huge that, uh, there's nothing left for the us. Um, And because at that point in the early history of video games, uh, people didn't uh, respect uh, licensed characters. Licensed properties were uh, anathema to the audience uh, because so many bad games had been created and had a licensed character slapped on them that people kind of hesitated before buying... uh, A game that was uh, uh, from a well-known character. They they trusted us because we were uh, just a bunch of guys, you know, writing the best games we could. Even though I think our games, the 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 Disney games were good, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they didn't uh, they didn't sell that well. Um, and part of it was that everybody assumed that they were easy games, even though they really weren't, we tried to make them, uh, as intricate and as uh, interesting as we could. Yeah. So anyway, after a couple of years, we just said hell with the Disney characters, you can have them back and, uh, we'll just produce our own stuff. And that's when we created police quest and space quest and, and Larry and, and, um, Uh, Laura Bow and, geez, uh, just a whole flock of other uh, characters. Uh, We we didn't need Disney characters to make up stories. We did our own. Well, when you got into the uh, second Leisure Suit Larry
0: game, I I heard gamers of a certain age will all know that disc swapping was a real pain back then. I I heard that you apparently made Leisure Suit Larry to reduce disc swapping the second game, and that didn't quite work as planned. Is that true? Uh,
2: I wanted to make a bigger game, but because Larry 1 was very open ended and you could go anywhere at any at any time uh you ended up having to swap disks in and out a lot um and so i thought it would be better to write a game that was linear that had Well, nowadays we would call them levels, you know, but back then they were areas. We had, you know, we had an area around Los Angeles and when you got everything done there, you would get on this cruise ship and you had that, that was disc two. And when you got off the cruise ship, you got on this other thing, this island, that was three and you got on an airplane, that was four, you know, so everything was, so you could play the game and once you finished with a disc, you could put it away and you'd start the next disc and you would work on that for a while and then you'd go to the next disc. so so I kind of conceived of the game as beads on a string, that there were six disks, six areas, and each was self contained within one floppy. Now, of course, by the time that was over, most everybody had a hard drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when hard drive prices got down low enough that most people could afford them, and so uh, that was not really as important <laughs> as as it turned out to be. but But I made some mistakes when I did that because uh, for example, you could leave Los Angeles without having the sunscreen. Well, you didn't need the sunscreen until two discs later. <laughs> And but then you know it was like oh you should have brought sunscreen what the hell I got to go back to to to, 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 to a saved game from two weeks ago you know so uh, yeah so there there were I made some mistakes but uh, if you played it properly it was fine though yeah (laughs) if you uh, yeah I mean and and seriously those were just errors on my part I I I, it was not intentional I didn't I wasn't trying to be cruel. uh, it was just a, a, a design oversight. And uh, you know, eventually I learned how not to do that, just like I learned how to get around death. You know, we had a lot of complaints from people about dying and uh, that Sierra games, you died all the time. Well, yeah, so I thought, well, that took that personally. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, try, I'll design a game where there's no death. And uh, so I did that with Larry Five, I think. And uh, when I was done, not one single reviewer even mentioned it. And it's like, wait, you guys all bitched about this all <laughs> these years, and now we, I, I go to all this trouble, and I do a game where you, you can't die, and then nobody even notices. <laughs> so after that, I just made deaths funny.
1: Well, we've noticed that you've done a Leisure Suit Larry Reloaded recently, and I guess you're bringing the old jokes
2: back. Times 10. We actually uh, increased the uh, number of lines of dialogue in the game from uh, around uh, 1,000, 1,500 to over 10,000. The new game is uh, much more... Oh, I hate to say fleshed out. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Well, it's that, although it's that too, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, we um, we were fortunate enough to uh, get a Kickstarter uh, campaign, a successful campaign, and and we um, uh, raised a lot of money and ended up spending all of it and produced a game that I'm very proud of. I I. Uh, uh, we did the best that I could do. We hired a, a real comedy writer, Josh Mandel, uh, to uh, write tons of new j- gags and jokes, and and um, we had a wonderful uh, animation. Everything's in in uh, retina quality graphics, higher than high def graphics. It looks beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's and and we had good animators uh, who were enthralled. Just pleased as hell that they got to do uh, paper animation again. You know, we got to draw all the pencil drawings and and then scan them in just like the old days. So it's a real fluid looking animation style and, and um, beautiful backgrounds and everything. Josh just went through every piece of that game and anything you could click on uh, has got some kind of funny message involved with it. And the game did great. I mean, we we, we pleased all of our Kickstarter people. We I think we shipped within 15 months which is kind of a record because right after we started the Space Quest guys started and they still haven't shipped theirs mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and several other games that have taken you know quite a bit longer than expected but we got it done in 15 months and uh, the game went out and was hot on the uh, Apple store and on the uh, Android store uh, for a few weeks and then suddenly it just kind of fell beneath the waves of new games that are coming out and uh, and so the sales overall have um, been we didn't lose money but uh, on the other hand we didn't make nearly enough to warrant doing another remake and so that was disappointing but but at least we have a a, a fun game that uh, that people can play today on tablets and phones and and all the other things it's a long, uh,
0: long way from the old F5 and a quarter inch floppies, isn't it? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's it's, uh, it's amazing the, the detail. I mean, uh, you know, an, uh, your watch, uh, and a smart watch today has more resolution than the entire screen did when we did the original games.
1: <laughs> yeah, the girls certainly look different in the new one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. It's just great that a
0: new generation of gamers will be able to experience this, um, you know, the character of Larry and. Uh, It must be quite touching that, you know, 30 years later, people are still interested in this character that you came up with all those years ago.
2: You know, if if I had known that this was going to last this long, I would have done a better job. Uh, Yeah, people tell me about the song, that the theme song, people still end up whistling the theme song and stuff. And it's like, hell, I wrote that in like 15 minutes one night before dinner, you know, because I I didn't have any music in the game. I thought, oh, I better put some kind of music in. What kind of song can I create i didn't want to do every other game out back then had um i don't know what you'd call it kind of driving metal music you know some real hard and and a hard rock kind of thing and and i thought well this is a goofy game it shouldn't be like that it should have goofy music and so i wrote a goofy song and um uh, I had no idea that it was uh, people thirty years later would still be whistling it. You know, it gives that kind of
1: sleazy, uh, wild western bar theme <laughs> as well. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tinkling piano in the
1: other
0: room. <laughs> well, Al, it's been amazing reminiscing and uh, getting some of your stories. And, uh, you know, I'd implore anyone that hasn't tried the new version of Leisure Suit Larry, uh, absolutely give it a buy on the, um, the Apple or the Android store. Well, you know, it'd be a bargain
2: at twice the price.
0: Well, Al, it's been brilliant talking to you just before you go. Um, what are you up to these days?
2: I've, I've been running uh, allo.com, a mm-hmm. uh, humor site, for 16, 18 18 years now. Mm -hmm. And for 18 years, every weekday morning, I send out two jokes to a big mailing list of people. Uh, I call it Cyber Joke 3000 (laughs) and uh, it's free. All you have to do is uh, go to the website and sign up and every weekday morning, you'll get an email with two jokes, one of which is clean. Oh, I'm just signing up now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the clean jokes. Eh? No. <laughs> so I, over seven, I've got over 7,000 jokes. And besides, at, at my website, there's lots of stories. If you listen this long mm-hmm. to me talk here, you, you want to go to my website because I've got tons of inside stories and things about the old days at Sierra and stuff that nobody else uh, you know knows about. Um, Plus I have a a joke database where you can enter in a phrase and you know, lawyer, and you'll get back uh, you know, hundreds lo- hundreds of lawyer jokes and blonde jokes and, <laughs> and saxophone player jokes. And, you know, there's just uh, – it's a regular database. It does a Google search of uh, all the 7,000 jokes that I've sent out so far. And uh, it's really handy if you need a joke for something. There's plenty of jokes there. There's probably some more Larry games in those jokes, I imagine. <laughs> uh, well, there's, there's some – well, actually, uh, the jokes came about because when I did the last Larry – well, let's, let me go back another step. All the Larry games had comedy shops or comedians or something in them because I've always collected jokes and I wanted a place to share them. And so that's why when you go to the Larry thing, there's all kinds of, of uh, comedy Uh, comedians telling jokes because I had all these jokes saved up over the years. So when I stopped doing games, I ended up, I had like a thousand jokes. And I thought, what am I going to do with all these? I'm not doing games anymore. I'll give them away. So every morning I started mailing out two jokes. And what happened was people got on the mailing list and then they would start sending me jokes. So I've gotten I'm, I'm sure a hundred thousand jokes over the years, <laughs> uh, all of which I've read and gone through, and, and uh, uh, that's now the list is uh, self-perpetuating. Um, but I have to assure you that I never duplicate jokes. I'm very uh, Uh, Conscientious about not sending out the same joke twice, and I edit them all. I tighten them all. I correct the spelling. I correct the grammar. I tighten them, make the punchlines funnier, you know. And then they can have it all for free because (laughs) at some point they probably bought a Larry game.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a couple of guys that grew up playing your games, Al. I mean, it's been amazing talking to you and getting your stories.
2: So uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Love it. I I hope you can edit this down to something that's uh, suitable for children.
0: Thanks very much, Anal.
1: Thank you.